We'll be looking at the Tower of Babel this morning. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought to yourself or asked the question as you were reading through this, you know, what was the big, what was really the big deal about the Tower of Babel? Why did God come down and confuse the languages and disperse them? Uh, Before we even really get to the Tower of Babel, I want to do a brief recap real quick of what we have seen from mankind up to this point. What we have seen from the creation, namely man and woman, up to this point. Adam and Eve, of course, were created. They were given a law, a command. Uh, You can eat of every tree, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of that tree. And man fell short there. Adam and Eve, of course, partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw Cain and Abel. Both of them made sacrifices. One acceptable. One not acceptable to God. But Cain was specifically told, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain instead does not seek to do well. He seeks to kill his brother. And that's exactly what he does. We see from the line of Cain, Lamech, the first to take two wives, and he makes this hyper-arrogant statement that if Cain be avenged sevenfold, then with me it would be seventy-sevenfold. From there, we are told why God will destroy the earth and all flesh with a flood. Because mankind was evil and every intention of the heart, every thought of the mind was only evil continually. Not a really good track record for mankind so far, right? No, we're batting a thousand, really, in a way. We're just batting a thousand for the wrong team, so to speak. But God in His grace and in His mercy... Noah finds grace, finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah, his wife, three sons and their wives are instructed to build an ark. But again, don't forget the reason why that flood is coming. Mankind is evil. The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Flood comes and sure enough, everything is destroyed. Only Noah and his three sons And their wives are left. And of course the animals that were on the ark. But of man and woman, only Noah, the three sons and their wives. Last week we talked about the table of nations that all people groups come from, ultimately come from, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives. Now before we cover that, we looked at the covenant that God made with all flesh. When we see a rainbow today, we would say, well, that's a sign of the covenant. After the flood, God said He would never again destroy all flesh with a flood. And the sign of that covenant will be that when we see His bow in the sky. So God in His grace and in His mercy tells Noah that never again, never again will I flood the earth. Never again will I destroy all flesh. From the face of the earth. 
Now let's talk about Noah for just a second. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now when they first got off the ark, Noah worshipped. Right? Amen. Shortly thereafter, what do we read about with Noah? He's literally passed out drunk in his tent. Hmm. So we come to the conclusion that even Noah is still yet a human. And all fall short of the glory of God. Ham, at the very least, seemed to have mocked the nakedness of his father, made a comment to his brothers, did nothing about it, was unconcerned with the shame and the nakedness of his father. But Shem and Japheth cover the nakedness of their father. We talked about the significance of that, how it was almost a mirroring of God covering the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve in the garden. But the line of Ham, Canaan, one of the sons of Ham, is cursed. Shem and Japheth, their lineages receive a blessing. Then we have the table of nations. The table of nations mentions this name Nimrod. That he was a mighty hunter. Um, therefore it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. With that being said, let's turn our attention to what we refer to as the Tower of Babel. The episode, the narrative of the Tower of Babel within Scripture. Keep in mind mankind's track record. Keep in mind that all people groups of the earth are coming from the line of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Also, still, keep in mind God's sovereignty over all things. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stones and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So all the peoples of the earth are one. They have one language. They, they share that in common. They are united. Then it seems that all the people here are united in this common goal. And at first blush, again, this common goal might not seem overly sinful. Overly rebellious. They're people that come together. They say, let us make a city. Let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens. I'm just saying at first blush here. We're not getting into it just yet. But at first blush, you say, well, building a tower that reaches to the heavens. Uh, that seems a little bit arrogant. seems a little bit prideful. But, I mean, they're just wanting to build a great nation. Uh, they want to make a name for themselves. They want, to, they want to do great things, right? I mean, in the American spirit, we would probably say, yes, progress. Yes, innovators. They're doing an awesome... Yes, look what mankind can accomplish. Right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't necessarily say, oh, what a sinful, rebellious thing to do. But we know, many of us are familiar with this, we know that God is about to come down, confuse the languages, languages and disperse the people. And the Tower of Babel is done away with. They never complete their project. They never complete the goal of Making a great name for themselves. 
So if you've ever asked yourself the question, what was the big deal about mankind wanting to build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens and making a name for themselves? In a lot of ways, that kind of sounds like the American dream. Build something great, be successful, go for it. You're capable of anything. Well, now let's dive into it from a biblical perspective. And we will see what was very wrong with this goal to build a great city with a tower that reaches to the heaven. First thing we're going to look at is the last thing that is mentioned in verse 4. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. That is direct rebellion against what God had instructed them to do. The very opening verses um, of chapter 9. Genesis 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I said verse says. This is just the first verse. Fill the earth. And who received that instruction? Noah and his sons. Now. At this. Coming together of the peoples. And this common theme of let us build a city. Let us build a great tower. They literally say. Lest we be dispersed. Over the face of the whole earth. That's what they're supposed to do anyway. That's what God told them to do. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. And they're saying. We don't want to be dispersed. We want to stay together. We want to stay right here. Where we're at. Direct rebellion. Against the authority of God. And what he had instructed them. To do. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. <clears throat> let us make a name for ourselves. They were, they were together in their goal to make their own name great. To make their own name mighty. To build a name for themselves. Pride. Arrogance. That's rooted in this dedication. We're not going to do what God told us to do. We're not going to be obedient to God. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to plant our feet down. We're going to build a great city right here. And we're in that city. There's going to be a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we're not going to be dispersed over the earth. So the intentions behind the city and the Tower of Babel are rooted in rebellion against God and His authority over all things. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and you could, you could look at that. <laughs> you could look at that simply like, well, God is in the heavens. He came down. Or you could look at that as here, here's this people saying that they're going to build this great and mighty tower that's going to reach to the heavens, but God has to stoop down low just to even see this thing, how foolish they think they are that they can build this thing all the way up to heaven that is going to reach God. He still has to stoop low to see what these puny little humans are trying to accomplish. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. 
They have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now you may read that, well, nothing will be, nothing, um, nothing that they propose will be impossible for them. And you might think, oh, well, if God would not have intervened, then is it possible that man, that we could have accomplished like literally whatever we wanted to accomplish? Instead, understand this. Had God not stooped down, confused the languages and, and done away with this prideful project. The evil intentions of man would have just continued and continued and continued. No rebellion, no evil that they could propose of would have been would have been hindered. They were all one. They all had one language. Whatever they sought to accomplish in direct rebellion against God, it would have just continued on and on and on. So in that regard, there's really mercy and there's really grace in God confusing the languages and dispersing the people. Much in the same way that there was grace and mercy in the garden after the fall when God made sure that Adam and Eve would not be able to have access back to the tree of life. And there was angels with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the garden. There's grace and mercy in that. All people were one. They had the same language. What was their goal? Their goal was to build a great city with a high and mighty tower that reaches to the heavens. And they were going to make a name for themselves so that they wouldn't be dispersed. Direct rebellion against God. As I was reading through this and, and, and studying it, it crossed my mind that I wonder if there was pride to the extent that there was this feeling of even if even if God tried to flood the world again, we're going to build a tower so great and so mighty that not even the floodwaters that God himself sends could cover the tops of the tower. Now, I never really had that thought before. So I did a little research because let me share this with you. When you're doing Bible study, when you're when you're in your in your studies or you're thinking about things, rest assured with this fact, none of us have ever had an original thought. Okay? So what does that mean? Whatever we think, and we're studying the scriptures. Now we we're learning in the scriptures. We might think, well, I've never had that thought before. I've never realized that before. Understand this. Somebody else realized it or somebody else thought about it long before you did. We don't have any original ideas. Now, the downside of that, especially if you're the type of person that you, you're kind of a an explorer at heart, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's an exciting feeling when you think, oh, I've never realized that before. I, so to understand that we've never had an original thought, the downside of that is understanding we've never had an original thought. We might come across something, but somebody else thought about it or had that thought or had that teaching before we came up with it. So that's really the only downside to that. The exciting part of that is we've never had an original thought, so we can do research on it. And especially now in the age of Google, where you can just Google a phrase or Google a thought, and if anybody throughout history has ever had that thought, it'll come up for you. You can find where somebody wrote about it, somebody uh, preached on it or whatever else. So I started doing some research on this thought of, how deep was the pride? How deep was the arrogance of the Tower of Babel or whatever else? Josephus, 
Not Bocephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Um, and it's actually recorded in his history book. Chapter 1, paragraph 4. That it was noted. It was attributed to Nimrod. That Nimrod actually said. That he would be avenged on God. Should anybody try to destroy this tower. And that he was building it. Because God had taken away or destroyed or killed his forefathers. How dare he. Right. So the purpose. One of the purposes behind the building of the tower. Does seem to be kind of this. We're going to show you God. You think you can destroy the world? Well, now we're going to build a tower so great and so mighty that even if you tried to do it again, you wouldn't be able to. The pride and the arrogance, the rebellion against God and his authority. Again, mankind, we don't really have a good track record so far. Spoiler alert. You study all of scripture and you even look at the world today. Mankind, we still don't have a good track record. You want to know why? Scripture's clear on it. All fall short of the glory of God. We're born in sin because of the fall. Because of Adam, we're born in sin. God actually gave a covenant. I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. I will never again wipe out all flesh with a flood. That is reason for all mankind to rejoice and worship God. The same God who destroys. The same God who judges. Is a God who is merciful and gracious. And promises never to destroy the world with a flood again. The same God who judges is the same God who preserves life. Through Noah and his three sons. That is reason for all mankind to rejoice and worship. The holy God of all creation. But here we see. That mankind is so defiant. As to say even if he were to try. To destroy us with a flood again. We're going to build a city with a tower so great and mighty. That he wouldn't be able to accomplish it. We're going to show ourselves to be mighty. We're going to, show, we're going to make a great name for ourselves. So that we receive the praise. So that we receive the honor. Not God. Now you would. In a way. We would expect that from the line of Canaan. In a way. Because they're a cursed line. You say okay well from the cursed line. That, that makes sense. They're probably not going to be God worshippers. But this says that all people, which would include the line of Shem and Japheth as well. They were all together. And who were they in this sense? Who were they acknowledging as their king? Even though that title isn't given here. But who were they really acknowledging as a king, as their leader? Nimrod. The great and mighty hunter. We'll follow his leadership. Not God. God says be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Nimrod says let's build a great city so that we won't be dispersed. And they were all one 
in following the rebellion. Not the submission. Not the obedience. They were all one in following the disobedience. And so God comes down. Confuses the languages. And disperses them. Briefly I want to notice. Or I want to point out. I want you guys to notice. Uh, turn to Deuter- Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you want to, I'm just going to read one or two verses. But if you'd like to turn there, go ahead. Or if you just want to make a note of it, Deuteronomy 4. I'm going to start in verse 15. We're going to read through verse 19. Therefore, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form... On the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure. The likeness of male or female. The likeness of any animal that is on the earth. The likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air. The likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. The likeness of any fish that is uh, that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So here's a warning to the people of God. Now this, of course, is way later than the Tower of Babel. But Moses is reminding them, don't you be turned away to any created thing. Don't you be turned away to the birds or the creeping things on the earth. Don't be turned away by the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he says things that that God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now simply put, he's reminding them that all of creation is there really to serve us. The sun, the moon, the stars, the animals. God put them there. We enjoy God's creation, but we also exercise a sort of Dominion over God's creation. All those things are there to serve us. Why would we turn around and worship something that God made to serve us? Why would we in turn serve those things and worship them? Rather than giving our worship to the one who has created all things. But also in that you could note what has become... Of every single individual, every single nation, every single people group that has ever turned away from God, that has ever not worshipped God, that has ever not acknowledged God as the sovereign creator of all things. What becomes of all of those individuals, nations, and people groups? They worship something. That's why we have a multitude of idols, false religions, false gods. There's You will not find a shortage of false religions, false gods, and false beliefs on the earth. You will not find a shortage of idols on the earth. Why? Why? Because when mankind is left in their natural condition, we will always choose to worship idols, worship the creation, rather than the Creator. And even here, Right after the flood. 
a short time, I say right after the flood because it's, when you're reading the Bible, it's literally just a page over. But a short time after the flood, mankind is already, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do our own thing. Let's rebel against God. Let's do what we want to do. Let's accomplish our purposes. So at the very least, you could say that their God was themselves. Now, Babel, many agree that Babel later became Babylon. And there is no shortage of false gods and idols that Babylon produced during its time. The next verse in Deuteronomy chapter 4, if we would have stayed there, Moses reminds the people, God chose you. God pulled you out of the furnace of Egypt. He's claimed you as his own. As a reminder and as if to say, don't you dare be so foolish and so arrogant as to turn back to the gods of Egypt and the gods of this world. After the one true God of all creation has pulled you out of the fire and claimed you as his own and redeemed you. Don't you dare be so foolish as to turn back and do your own thing and worship the false gods of the world. And the same is true for us today. We who call ourselves Christians, we need to, we all would do well to ask ourselves, am I worshiping the true God of all creation? Or in all of my religious efforts and all of my efforts to, to be religious, have I still fallen victim to the age old temptation to worship anything? Anything other than the true God of all creation. We would be just as foolish today to try to make a great name for ourselves. We would be just as foolish today to spend our lives building a name for Caleb Folsom. I would be just as foolish as the people that were here saying, let's build a great city. I would be just as foolish as to say, during my lifetime, I'm going to make a great name for Caleb Folsom. I'm going to be well known. I'm going to be known as somebody who accomplished things in his life. I'm going to be known as somebody who could get the job done. I'm going to be known as a go-getter. I'm going to exert all of my energy to make a name for myself. It would be just as foolish and just as empty for us to do that. It would be just as foolish... For us to think that it is even possible for us to make a great name for ourselves. Now, earthly speaking, among our peers, sure, we could do things that people might think, that's a great man, that's a great woman. But in the eyes of God, for the unrepentant sinner, even our righteousness is as filthy rags. You can't make a name so great for yourself that you'll be accepted before a holy God. It's foolishness to think so. Even greater folly is to think that you don't need the acceptance of God. That you can be your own God. That you can be greater than God. Nothing has changed. It's foolishness and it's folly. When we know what God has spoken. In this case, God had said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And when we are foolish enough to say, we heard what God said. We're going to do this because we don't want to be dispersed. On the earth. 
You can rest assured that God will always judge disobedience. God will always judge sin. And just as it was foolishness and folly for the people here to think, we don't have to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's instead build a great city with a tower so that we don't have to be dispersed. It's just as foolish and folly for us, foolishness and folly for us to say, we know what God has spoken in his word. We know what God expects of his people. We know what God expects uh, uh, of us. Let's do this instead. Let's focus on our own agenda instead. Why was the earth destroyed in a flood? Because of the wickedness and sinfulness of man. What are we observing here? The wickedness, the sinfulness of man. But God has already given the covenant. I won't do it again. I'm not going to flood the earth again. Just how wicked, just how evil, just how rebellious can mankind be? Here, it very much seems that mankind is actually presuming upon the kindness and the mercy of God. That they're acting presumptuously. Oh, hey, he's already told us he's never going to destroy us again. So we can do whatever we want. He's already given us a covenant. We know that he's not going to break his covenant because he's God. So we can do whatever we want. Just how wicked and sinful and rebellious can mankind be? This is a really good picture of it. He's already said he won't do it. Almost as if to say, let's test him. Let's do our own thing. And hey, even if he tries it, the tower's going to be so tall he can't cover it with water. Truly, Truly, we read from Scripture that there is none that does good. There's none that seeks God. There's none that pursues righteousness. And so far, just through a little bit more than 10 chapters of Genesis, we have seen mankind's track record. You say, Caleb, that's about the sixth time that you have said mankind's track record. Why are you trying to get us to be so familiar with mankind's track record? Mankind always chooses to go against God. You understand that? Mankind always chooses to rebel. The reason that I want us to really, really understand that is because I hope that that would lead to the question. Well, if mankind is so evil, we always rebel. We always choose what's wrong. If, if that's the state of mankind, why would God save anybody? And to that, I say, good question. And the biblical response to that question is, because it was his good pleasure to do so. Because God chose to save. Well what if God chose not to save anybody? Then none would be saved. Does God have any obligation to save a people. That is constantly stiff necked rebellious and sinful. Does God have any business Saving those people. No. So why does he do it? Because it was his good pleasure to do so. It was his will to save. And if God never chose to save. 
none would be saved. That is mercy and grace that God would save even one. But we know, we talked about this last week, we know that he did, God didn't set out just to save one person. In the end, when it's all said and done, there's going to be an innumerable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that have been redeemed, that have been saved. Why? Why would God do that for such a sinful, rebellious people? Because He is a gracious God. He is a loving God. He is a God whose steadfast love for His people endures forever. It was His good pleasure to do so. I would say, just from these first ten chapters of Genesis, we can make a pretty good argument that mm, if God never chose to save anybody, He'd be just to do so. Because we certainly don't deserve it. Right? God is not obligated to save. And with these comments, I'm also trying to set the the stage and the groundwork a little bit for what's to come after Christmas when we start talking about Abraham and the founding of the nation of Israel. So consider that. The rampant rebellion and wickedness of mankind And yet God still chooses to save and redeem. And what is that all connected to? Oh yeah. Genesis 3. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed, serpent. You'll bruise his heel. Your head's going to be crushed. And God is still here in Genesis 11. On throughout the rest of Genesis. On throughout the Old Testament. God is still ever being faithful. To what he told the serpent. When he made coverings for Adam and Eve. And clothed them. What is that a picture of? Christ and his covering. Right there in Genesis 3. And the rest of scripture. Is a beautiful unfolding. Of the story of redemption. That God had set in motion and set in place even before the earth was created. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now you just threw another wrinkle in there, Caleb. First you said it goes back to Genesis 3. Then you said that this story of redemption was actually set in motion before the foundation of the earth. What gives? What gives? Well, if you were to look two different places, Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians, Paul says that it is God's will to unite all things in heaven and on earth, to unite all things in Christ Jesus. We've talked about this one before. If there is no fall, if there is no sinful mankind, then there's no need for a Savior. If there's no need for a Savior, then all things in all of creation, human beings included in that, all things would not be united in Christ. He wouldn't be necessary. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that Christ will have preeminence in all things. That in all things, Christ will have preeminence. Christ will reign. His name will be above every name. He will receive preeminence 
in all things. And that purpose, that plan of redemption, of uniting all things in Christ, of giving Christ preeminence, that plan was founded and set in motion before the foundations of the earth. God never had to switch to plan B or switch to plan C. There has always been plan A with God. The reason I say that is there are some, there are some that will still try to say, well, God, God wanted Adam and Eve to stay perfect for forever. But when they sinned, he had to, then he had to change. And then there are some that will say, well, in the New Testament, if, if the Jewish people would have accepted Jesus like God wanted them to, he wouldn't have had to have been crucified. No. There was always one plan of redemption. So now let's unpack that one a little bit. Christ is to have preeminence in all things. All things are to be united in Christ. That's the plan of God. What, what is mankind trying to do right now? They're all one. So they're united. But what are they united in? They're united in their rebellion. And what's their goal? To make a great name for themselves. Not to make much of the name of God. Not to give Him the glory. But to make a great name for themselves. And what is their rebellion? That they don't want to be dispersed upon the earth. Even though God said fill the earth. So now when we take a step back and we, we remind ourselves. Okay it has always been God's intention. To unite all things in Christ Jesus. So that Christ can have the preeminence in all things. Is there any connection with that? To what the, what the people of the world are trying to do here. Well they're trying to make a name for themselves. God's plan is for Christ to have the preeminence in all things. Christ's name will be the name that is lifted above every name. They're already united but they're united in their rebellion. All things will be united in Christ. So he is to receive the glory. For people of every tribe, tongue and nation being one and that is one of the reasons that his name reigns above every other name that he is lord of lords and king of kings so we'll close with considering that what was the punishment what was the repercussion of babel the languages were confused and the people were dispersed by the way i'll throw this in there i'll throw this in for free The people set out to say we're not going to be dispersed. Directly against God. What ends up happening? God disperses them. Listen. When we say that God is sovereign. And that God accomplishes his purposes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many men get together and say. We're not going to let God have his way. God is going to have his way. Period. You can ask Jonah. If you want another example. You can ask Jonah. If God had his way. And if God accomplishes his purposes, even when you get in a boat and head the other direction. So. God accomplishes his purpose They're together. But let's look at this. The punishment was the confusion of the languages, dispersions of the people. I've mentioned the day of Pentecost. I think this is the third Sunday in a row. I know it's at least the second Sunday in a row at the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit falls, there's cloven tongues above their heads. They're speaking. This is not a sermon on tongues, but I'm hear me. 
The miracle of tongues was that everybody heard in their own language. Okay? The people were speaking. Those around them heard in their own language. That's the miracle. Nevertheless, we're told in Acts that there was people from all over. Right? That's why it was such a miracle that they were hearing in their own language. People from different tribes, tongues, and nations. But they were hearing in their own language. What's the significance? Here, mankind is already united and they're united in their rebellion. God disperses them. But what has, God, what has God's plan been all along? To unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ Jesus. So that Christ will receive preeminence. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are made one. There's no Jew, no Scythian, no or no Jew, no no Greek, no Scythian, no nor barbarian, nor free, nor slave. All are one in Christ Jesus. Mankind cannot accomplish that which only God can accomplish. Now, I know that here in Genesis 11, you, we say, well, Jesus wasn't even on the scene yet. Jesus, this, this has nothing to do with Jesus necessarily or directly. I get all that. But it was God's intention. Christ is the only one who can truly unite people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And unite them in such a way where they can stand justified before a holy God. See... If mankind accomplishes their purpose of being one and being united on earth, if these people here would have been successful in being united and building their city and building their tower, they would have all been, at their death, they would have all been judged by God and they would be cast into hell at the end of the age. So what good would it have accomplished for all people to be united if they were all going to be united in their condemnation as well? It's a waste. It's a waste. Only in Christ Jesus are people from every tribe, tongue, and nation united in such a way that now they are able to stand rightly and be accepted by a holy God. And therefore, Christ is the one whose name is great. Christ's name is the name that is above all earthly names. It is Christ that we worship. It is Christ who receives the praise and the honor and the glory both now and forever. Not us. Not anything that we've done. Who are we in the story of redemption? We are the wretched sinner that does not merit salvation. But in the story of redemption, the wretched sinner who does not merit salvation is the recipient of grace. And in God's grace and in His mercy... We are in Christ Jesus and we are united with all believers. Over all the face of the earth, we are made one. And we will be presented holy and blameless before him in glory. Mankind cannot accomplish that which only God himself can accomplish. We can try. We can try to mimic it. We can try to mirror it. It will always fall short. Christ will unite us all as one. The name of Christ will have preeminence. Man can play God. 
But only Christ is God. Very last note. And this is just a note. That's your sermon. Think on that. Meditate upon that. If you're exhausting all of your efforts trying to make a name for yourself. If we at Mindy's Baptist Church. If we exhaust, if we exhaust all of our efforts just to make a great name out of Mindy's Baptist Church. We're just as ignorant and just as foolish as the people trying to build that tower. It's Christ. It's all Him. We make much of the name of Christ. We magnify the name of Christ. And if we're caught up in trying to make a name for ourselves or trying to accomplish all of our earthly desires, we need to repent. If you're a Christian that's caught up doing that, repent. If you're a non-believer that you've been living your own life, you've been doing your own thing, you've been trying to pursue your own earthly goals, repent and be saved. But the last note, like I said, that's the sermon. I do want to make this note though. And I know that there's at least a handful of you that enjoy making these modern day connections. For For most of my entire life that I can remember paying attention, World peace and unity has been a battle cry of even those that are of a secular worldview. I always use the silly example of the, the, the Miss America pageant. A lot of times when they're asked, what, what would you, what, if you could, if you could do one thing in the world and grant one thing to the world, or if you could change something about the world, what would you pursue or what would you give to the world? World peace. Now, now, in our day today, there is a regime, there is a movement in saying that we all need to be united, we all need to love But their idea of being united and loving is to do away with all moral standards, to do away with all law, and just whatever you want to do, do it. Complete and utter debauchery and chaos. But do you know what they call that? Unity and love. We have things that are are out there, people saying that all of the nations need to come together and just have, you know, whatever. And I'm not, this isn't, an end time sermon or whatever else. I don't I don't get worked up about all of these things. But there are movements out that well we need a one world currency. Well we need that. And all in their head they're saying well we need to be united. We need to all be together. But it's a godless unity that they're pursuing. And in the same way that the people of the city and the tower were godless. And he was not in their thoughts. And their their little project failed. Any effort by mankind to be united. To be love. That is godless. Will fail. Won't just fail. It will be judged by God. It will be judged by God. And it will be consumed in a fiery judgment. Remember earlier 
when I said we've never had an original thought. It's not an original thought for godless people to say we need unity. We need to be one. We need to do great things. We need to change the world. It's not a new thought. What crazy idea did the people of Tower of Babel have? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's do great things. We're united. Let's do great things. There's no new thought. There's nothing new under the sun. People have been sinning the same way for forever. The thought I want you to cling to is this though. If you're talking to somebody that they're unsaved, they're godless, they're secular, they're totally given over to the secular worldview. When you hear people say, I wish we had unity. I wish we had love. I wish we had acceptance. Whatever, fill in the blank with whatever trigger word you want to use. Here's the thing. You remember in Genesis, earlier in Genesis when we talked about we're made in the image of God? Yeah? The book of Ecclesiastes says that eternity is written on our hearts. Here's the thing, when non-believers, when godless people talk about things like unity, peace, love, acceptance, what they're talking about is the new heavens and the new earth, heaven. What they're talking about is things that only Christ himself can grant, but they want those things without Christ and it is foolishness. We as believers, we ought to be able to communicate to them, hey, What you're pursuing, what you're going after is Christ. You just want it without Christ and that ain't going to happen. It's foolishness. It's sin. Repent and be saved. Because for all those who are in Christ, do you know what we have in Christ? Unity. Peace. Acceptance by the Father. Love. Because God is love. All of those things that the people of the world are pursuing... They don't even know it, but they are expressing that they're made in the image of God. They know that God exists, but they're suppressing that truth in their unrighteousness. And they want those things. They want the blessings of God. They want the benefits of God. They want the blessings of salvation, but they want it without Christ. And it's never going to happen. And they will be judged for it. And the only way to escape the wrath of God in judgment... Is to repent and be saved. Because in Christ. There's no condemnation. But I want you all to think. If you didn't get anything else from the sermon. Put this last thought in your mind. When the secu- What is the great sin of secularism? They're trying to accomplish things. That only Christ can accomplish. And they're trying to do it apart from God. They're trying to do it in their own power, in their own strength. They're trying to make a a great name for themselves when Christ is the name that will have preeminence over all things. When Christ is the one that will receive the glory and the honor and the praise. Let's close in a word of prayer.